0: And thanks for listening. Climate changes everything, including the world's shorelines. With the melting of Antarctica's ice and the Greenland ice sheet, projections for the seas to rise dramatically and quickly are increasing. How is this impacting our coastline? Welcome to Climate One changing the conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. Climate One Conversations are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. I'm Claire Schoen. Watching the news about rising seas due to climate change and the flooding that follows makes us wonder, where will it stop?
2: The problem is,
0: there is no upper limit to sea level rise.
2: So it's very overwhelming to think that there's no end to the, the rise in the tide. You know, that that it's not six feet, it's not five feet, it's not four feet. It's into perpetuity, just change and chaos and big storms.
0: That's Elaine Forbes, executive director of the Port of San Francisco. She talked with our host, Greg Dalton, at a recent Climate One event. Finding solutions to an ever-rising tide requires us to face thorny questions like what is this going to cost? Who's going to pick up the tab? And who will be the winners and losers?
3: What folks refer to as disadvantaged communities or low-income communities of color, they have been subjugated to the disproportionate environmental burdens of development. And they're mostly along the waterfront. They're closest to the waterfront.
0: Nahal Gogai is Bay Area Program Lead with the Environmental Justice Coalition for Water. She joined Greg's conversation, as did Larry Goldsband, the executive director of BCDC, the Bay Conservation and Development Commission, which is a state agency responsible for protecting the bay's coastline. Here's Greg and his guests. Larry Goldsband,
1: let's talk about how high, how fast. You mentioned sea level rise, and people
4: say, how high, how fast? If I could tell you that, I'd go to Del Mar tomorrow and bet on the ponies. (laughs) But what I can tell you is that what the state of California has decided is that we need to plan for two feet by 2050 and probably between four and seven feet by the end of the century.
1: Two feet by 2050. So that's in less than 30 years when seas rose about eight inches in a hundred years. And I'm just trying to run the math here. (laughs) Eight inches in a century, two feet in 30 years.
4: Yeah, so that's three times that. And the other thing to think about is that those projections, which are based on really some marvelous scientific work, are just that. They're projections.
1: And is this linear, or could it some? is this going to be more exponential, or it could happen really suddenly? Do we
4: know? It, is it going to be— No, nobody really knows, because it's all projections. But uh, if you take a look at the curve, it goes up. Elaine
1: Forbes, what's at stake? A lot of people who think, okay, a little bit of flooding downtown San Francisco.
2: I don't go there. I don't live there. What's at stake? So that's the thing that I think people don't realize is how important shorelines are to the communities behind them. I manage seven and a half miles of waterfront property, and it's incredible how many assets are behind the seawall. We're talking about regional transportation, you know, 500,000 passengers a day. Uh, We're talking about $101 billion of economic activity or value that the seawall provides flood protection to. Uh, We're talking about systems that serve the region, that serve the city, uh, utilities, water systems, wastewater systems, emergency response planning for the city post-disaster. So people may think, oh yeah, I love the waterfront. It's fun to come down and visit, but you know, that's nice. Without flood protection or a line of defense, there are so many um, externalities that occur for everyone.
1: For example, flushing the toilet, right? Yes. I mean, it, it, you know, the wastewater plants are yes. near the water. And Elaine Forbes, if I, if I
2: live on a hill, when you flush, it goes down to somewhere by, by the bay. That's right. So we have a lot of gravity-driven systems that have outfalls here. So, you know, I'm working on figuring out how to pay for a line of defense. It's such an expensive proposition if we don't act because everything behind it then would have to respond instead.
1: So you think the seawall is expensive. Think about bailing out the BART tube or or something like that. Exactly. Nahal Kogai, tell us about the people who are, are most vulnerable. There's areas around the Bay that contributed least to this carbon problem, and they're feeling it first and worst.
3: Right. Well, at the Environmental Justice Coalition for Water, we are managing the Disadvantaged Community Involvement Program to work with community leaders. Um, And right now we have 12 communities, and they are what folks refer to as disadvantaged communities or low-income communities of color. They have been subjugated to the disproportionate environmental burdens of industry development And they've actually developed quite a strong network amongst themselves um, leading their communities and their neighborhoods in, uh, you know, attending city hall meetings and fighting industry on ensuring that the air and the water in their communities is not contaminated anymore. And um, so they're actually quite savvy. I would consider them experts in their own right and they're mostly along the waterfront, they're closest to the waterfront and closest to industry.
1: And do they think that people in power are hearing their voices?
3: So my job is really to build that bridge between the, you know, the agencies, government and community leaders. And so our job is also to give a little bit more confidence in the California State Department of Water Resources to give them more confidence and help them build their trust amongst communities while also building that relationship and that trust so that community leaders can also apply for future funding and be seen as experts and as leaders who can manage these types of programs
1: because i've talked to some of those leaders who say well you know communities of color got shafted in the fossil fuel economy why is it going to be any different in the renewable energy economy this idea of a just transition you know we've what's been happening is nothing new to them and they think like we're not at the table in the brown economy and we're not at the table in the green economy i'm wondering if that you think that that's changing
3: i am an optimist I do see the expertise. Um, Permaculture, for example, this is a kind of a a philosophy of living directly off the land that you're on. You have rainwater harvesting. You know how to grow the crops that are native. Um, You can work with your neighbors. Building that community, you know, the, the network within your own neighborhood is something that I think has been kind of overlooked. We've been letting technology manage pretty much everything we do these days and so this is kind of exciting for me because i've always looked to kind of the tribal indigenous way of doing things of being stewards of the land and so i do see that that you know the place-based wisdom is coming back and it's being re-recognized or you know recognized Um, as a strategy forward in climate change.
1: Back to the way our grandparents lived. And when systems are volatile or unreliable, maybe, you know, kind of that local independence makes sense. We're talking about sea level rise at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests are Elaine Forbes, head of the Port of San Francisco, Larry Goldsband, who runs the Bay Conservation and Development Commission, a state agency, and Nahal Gogai from the Environmental Justice Coalition for Water. We sent a reporter to the downtown waterfront in San Francisco to learn what visitors, and residents have to say about rising seas.
2: The sea, the sea is coming. Oh man, it's a little complicated because this is one of the most important cities in the world.
4: Many people could be, you know, die. I live across the street on Spear Street, and we're actually, I think our apartment's probably below sea, sea level already. I'm not an owner. I probably would not buy down here because I think it is going to be a problem. Oh, we are at Book Passage
0: in the Ferry Building in San Francisco on the Embarcadero, looking at the bay. The Ferry Building is going to be partially underwater in my lifetime. Well, yeah, of course.
2: Of course. I mean, yeah, this is, is going to be water here all the time. When we got too much rain last year, I think, I was kind of concerned about it because actually we have, we have uh over floated over there by Pier 23 down that way, I think. It happens in Yemen last, I think, last three months or four months ago, and a lot of building is damaged and the people they are died. I, I'm here for three years in California, San Francisco. I'm here working in ferry building you near know, to the sea, near to the sea, and I wish I don't want to see this. I want to see all the buildings safe, all the country safe. But I think it could happen much sooner than we think. You know,
3: I see them in a, in a really high tide with a with a mild storm, water splashing over, you know, on the abarcadero already.
0: It's hard for me to picture what the economy of our major coastal cities will become. I get fearful, and then I um, go do something else.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Those are residents and visitors along the San Francisco waterfront, downtown San Francisco. A lot in there, but Elaine Forbes, I want to pick up on that last comment. Is is that I look at it I'm scared and I look away so how do you sustain an instant a personal and an organizational focus on something that most people want to just
2: can't look at not deal with Um, so it's very overwhelming to think that there's no end to the the rise in the tide you know that that it's not six feet it's not five feet it's not four feet it's (laughs) into perpetuity just change and chaos and big storms Those kinds of thoughts are very discouraging. But I do, in the back of my head, realize that if we don't figure out a stable future for our planet, we have catastrophe coming. But I can work with my team to make our waterfront safer, to engage the community, to make investments today that will will make a safer place, more resilient place, and a place we can leave to our children.
1: So you break it down into an actionable piece because the whole thing is just too overwhelming to look at. It is.
2: So I, I focus on we're going to figure out coming together pretty soon, and we're going to change our behavior, and we'll have some kind of stable future. So we are going to uh, prepare this shoreline for what we know is coming.
1: Larry Goldsman, you have a much broader geographic responsibility. It was a couple hundred miles of coast. How do you grapple with the scale of that, thinking about all of the property at risk? Billions and billions of dollars sitting right there.
4: So j- just to set a little context, the, the bay right out there is actually larger than the city of Los Angeles. And it has somewhere between four and 500 miles of shoreline in BCDC's jurisdiction, which is about half the linear length of the California coast. So it's pretty big. The good news is that In a poll that was just published by the Public Policy Institute of California within the nine counties of the Bay Area Over 80% of the people who were interviewed said that rising sea level is either a Somewhat or very serious problem So we're very fortunate at BCDC in that we don't have to fight a tide at least not that kind of tide unlike some of my peers who Work in the Gulf states or who work on the East Coast or the mid-Atlantic so I think the way we tend to look at it is that yes it's a region and it's a big region but it's very different when you take a look at different parts of the shoreline and so you have to figure out what can work in different parts of the bay and I think Elaine's right if you if you want to just step back and take a look at the whole thing then the eyes get wide and you know you just want to take a drink or three or four Mm -hmm. but the fact is is that if you if you take it in smaller bites then you can probably get through what you need.
0: Greg Dalton is talking about managing our coastlines in the era of climate change with Elaine Forbes, Executive Director of the Port of San Francisco, Larry Goldsband, Executive Director of BCDC, the Bay Conservation and Development Commission, and Nahal Gogai with the Environmental Justice Coalition for Water. Here's your host, Greg Dalton.
1: Nahal guy, where's the money going to come from? You know, Silicon Valley and San Francisco, lots of money, that property will get protected. The money will come somehow. But for areas that don't have as much money, where is the money going to come for low-income, East Palo Alto, Vallejo, Alameda, low-income areas? Where's the money going to come from?
3: We're asking the same question. <laughs> um, but I think, you know luckily we're in a state that has a you know very long history of environmental justice and um, I'm part of a legacy of environmental justice leaders who have made an impact at the state level to ensure that you know some of the tax dollars is going to um, these low-income communities making sure that they are protected I also do believe in the idea of getting the private sector to invest a little bit more with their uh, you know the various forms of corporate social responsibility campaigns that they have and finding a way where the private sector knows that they're impacting a certain neighborhood and therefore finding a way to offset uh, the impacts.
1: One example is uh, Facebook has expanded toward the Bay and Nahal, they have given the Zuckerberg Foundation what gave $3 million to East Palo Alto. Tell us about that.
3: Yeah, so one of our outreach partners with the Proposition 1 program is in East Palo Alto. And uh, they had a moratorium on development based on the fact that they didn't have enough water rights to develop new housing. And that was partly due to the fact that Facebook's headquarters had already utilized all of the water that the whole area could use. And um, so they're, they're pretty much taking over all of East Palo Alto. And so um after a long fight, I think it was several years, the Zuckerberg Foundation as well as the city of Mountain View, either they paid or gave water rights to East Palo Alto recently. So it's a recent win, but it was a, you know, it was a long fight in the making. And so I, I want to give a shout out to Tamika Bennett and Youth United for Community Action for leading that program.
1: Larry Goldsband, your organization has a map that I actually have on my desktop on my computer. I've <laughs> had it there for years, and it shows Yahoo, Google, Facebook, Oracle... All the tech companies uh, in, in Silicon Valley, which is very low-lying, it's the most challenged, I believe, part of the Bay. It's protected by earthen berms that are vulnerable to earthquakes, et cetera. It's like, you know, it's like kids at the, at the beach kind of stuff. Um, what are those companies doing to recognize, to be partners for the stewardship of their corporate campuses and the, and the, the homes of their
4: employees? Well, I I think that's a great question, and it's why I'm really happy that my wife, who's a senior attorney at Intel, is on the third floor. (laughs) I think that the real issue there is what is the private sector responsibility versus what is the public sector responsibility? Flood control, if you want to talk about actual honest gosh flood control, has always been a public sector responsibility, at least Mm post-World War II, as far as I know it. There is no Bay Area-wide flood control agency. We have... I think 27 flood control agencies or 21, I don't remember what the number is, scattered around the bay. And for the most part, they deal with riverine flooding as opposed to actual bay flooding. Because remember, the bay is this big shallow bathtub, right? And so if you have a big storm and you have an El Nino or you have rising sea level, the water going to come at you not only from the bay but also down the hills and when they meet, That's where you have the issues, or at least a lot of the issues. So I think that there needs to be, and there has been, a pretty good discussion among policymakers about what the actual role should be of public versus private flood control, flood control issues. I think that the one thing that is really really helpful and i want to give a shout out is that the bay area council and the silicon valley leadership group have taken this on and they've taken this on pretty much head first
1: and these are the kind of the chamber of commerce of silicon valley.
4: of silicon valley and san francisco and, mm-hmm. and the region and they totally get the fact that jobs these days can be exported but at the same time There's such a pull to the bay area that the googles and the facebooks and so on They are here and they don't want to move And twitters and and the twitters and so as a result you're going to see more and more of those kinds of discussions and ultimately There's going to be a public charge to protect that which is built which should be protected mm-hmm.
1: and there was an effort to do that measure aa was a region-wide effort and it was a ten dollars fifteen dollars something 12 bucks. Uh, a parcel tax which means that the people listening to this paid the same um, amount as the google headquarters per parcel per parcel so elaine forbes is that equitable that you know, a big corporation and a retired homeowner pay the same dollar amount to protect the bay am
2: i allowed to answer no I think no Um, But it is terrifying to me as someone working on funding this because I'm having a heck of a time figuring out the funding for our project five billion dollar seawall project That was
1: B billion B
2: with a billion (laughs) and that's three miles and I have another four and a half miles to think about too and We have been definitely making development part of the solution. So any developer on port property is paying a shoreline tax I've also thought about a special tax to charge specifically the businesses, 500 acres of property getting flood protection from the seawall. So they pay a bit more. Then I've been thinking about the federal government through the Army Corps of Engineers, and the state, the state built our harbor, there's an economic interest of the state, and then the localities as well. So my problem, my $5 billion problem, no one source is gonna pay for it, so it's kind of a a necessity that I'm going to all these various places, but I do think the private sector absolutely has to be a critical component of any funding solution. And we need to get going in putting in critical life safety improvements first, because I have a dual problem, dual threat. And most shoreline communities have more than just the flood problem. So I have an earthquake hazard because the shoreline was built before modern seismic standards. And then a flood problem. Oh, I have a third problem, aging infrastructure, 100-year-old seawall.
1: Nahal Gogai, I want to get you in here on terms of communities that often may not see that they have a, a stake in this infrastructure. Is this on the radar of the communities you're talking to?
3: If you know what types of questions to ask and how to frame the conversation you will see that there's more understanding than you would have expected when we meet with community leaders um, we we try to do it from a community-based solutions perspective which is very open-ended discussions it's facilitated discussions kind of talking about what's what's going on in your neighborhood? What are some issues you're noticing? And then we take their answers and we share that with the folks that are data scientists, the people that can draw the nexus between water, sea level rise, climate change issues. So connecting community leaders with technical leaders and seeing where there's a connection there.
1: So much of the climate conversation is complicated. It's cerebral. It's damn polar bears, right? It, 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 things that just seem very remote for people, particularly if you're trying to work a couple jobs, you know, uh, get the kids to school, pay the rent. And so I'm interested in, in Nahal in terms of how you bridge that language from the climate conversation, which came out of environmentalism, which is viewed as white suburban elite, right? Mm-hmm. The, the sole hiker in the woods and the pretty butterfly. Like that's far away from <laughs> where a lot of people are.
3: hmm So one example is uh, working with communities on addressing the issue of homelessness. Um, You wouldn't think initially when you're talking about water issues that people would start talking about homelessness. But when we have these facilitated conversations, we're just asking open-endedly, what is something happening? What's a problem in your community? And homelessness is becoming a larger and larger issue in the Bay Area. And we can make that connection for them. We can say, you know, I know that our funding is water related, it's, it's from the Department of Water Resources, so we can't exactly go to housing and say, let's, let's create more housing for your issue, but we could say that we can turn it into a sanitation issue, we can talk about um, water quality, Bay Health, and then we can find the funding to address the problem.
1: If you're just joining us, we're talking about sea level rise in San Francisco and beyond. Our guests are Nahal Gogai, Bay Area Program Lead with the Environmental Justice Coalition for Water. Larry Goldsband, Head of the Bay Conservation and Development Commission, a state agency in California. And Elaine Forbes, Executive Director of the Port of San Francisco. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, Larry Goldsband, there are going to be some really hard decisions about places to protect and abandon or retreat and who's gonna make those decisions to protect or walk back development along the coast who's gonna make that in our democracy
4: you know when you talk about managed retreat which is what really what you're talking about it's not easy but you can talk about numbers you can talk about The value of property you can talk about avoided costs you can talk and I sound like the MBA student I I once was But there are other costs that really need to be talked about and those are the social costs We can look at East Palo Alto and say if nothing had ever been developed in East Palo Alto You'd have a gorgeous marsh that would allow for a tremendous amount of sponge effect and help rising sea level and so on and so forth But the fact is people built stuff there um, and it's not so easy to look at a place whether it be East Palo Alto or Belvedere and Marin County look, overlooking the Bay
1: where there's multi-million where
4: multi-gajillion dollar houses and say well It's time for you to pack up and go and that's because especially in a place like East Palo Alto Which is an underserved community you have neighborhoods and community and people live there and they live close the aunt and uncle who might take care of the kid when he or she comes home from school and the church that they go to or the synagogue or the mosque or whatever is probably pretty close to them and it's probably near where their job is and so all of a sudden if you're starting to uproot people because somebody and it's going to be a public sector that's going to ultimately figure this one out says we need to do managed retreat then you have a huge social dislocation cost huge which is not measurable, really, in terms of dollars. And one of the things that BCDC has done, our state agency, has created a planning program, the Adapting to Rising Tides program, which you don't look at an asset first, you know, like a wastewater. You look at people, and you have to figure out how people work and how people live together, and that's the way you start a process.
1: Elaine Forbes, let's get you on that. Uh, your territory very wealthy San Francisco's more in the defend versus retreat area. How do you see that? Areas that will be protected and areas where like, we're not sure, you know, who's
2: going to pay the money to protect right. those certain areas? I think that this issue of the expense that's going to come up and telling communities to move, who've been there for generations perhaps. And it's just like, it It feels like with every major problem, it always hits low-income people and people of color hardest. And this is definitely no exception. And if we thought if we moved from the United States and thought about the globe, we would really start thinking in those terms. So I, I think these questions, at some point, we're going to have to engage and be rational actors and not spend incredible dollars to keep small numbers in a place, but I don't think that's for a government actor to say on their own. I really think that communities need to work together to make these decisions over time, and I will say one other thing. I, When I got into this world and realized my new port director hat was being sort of a sea level rise person, uh, and so will every port director coming after me, I thought, I don't want to design the waterfront for the next generation. I want the next generation to design the waterfront. <laughs> and I still fundamentally feel that way, that we need to set a frame and do flood protection and do incremental changes and have regional solutions or regional governance and community outreach. But, but I do think we have to prepare and engage to answer these big questions.
1: Nahal Gogai, do you and the communities you talk with really trust a government to make good choices, (laughs) a government that pushed Indians off their land? And, you know, do you really trust American democracy right now to make
3: these kinds of choices? (laughs) Um, depends on what scale you're you're talking about, (laughs) but I do think my organization, one of our main tenets is to bridge the gap between communities who don't typically trust the government and the government and we're we're still struggling with that especially with managing this it's 6.5 million dollars that we're managing for the whole nine county bay area and now that we are the holders of that funding, that government funding, we're starting to be seen a little bit more as the government representatives. So it's been a difficult place for us, but we have to remember you know, our core values of who we are and how we were established and to keep you know, encouraging community leaders to join the conversation.
1: I've interviewed a lot of people. One of the more memorable ones was Bill McKibben, who said, you know, we won the argument 20 years ago. This is about power. Fossil fuel companies hang on to their power. There he goes, Goldsband, there's also power at stake and who gets to make these decisions, because... There's some people who want more regional power, but that means taking power away from mayors and city council members and county commissioners. So I'd like to hear you on regionalism and the willingness of local officials willing to give up a little power so that a region like the Bay Area or Houston or New York can act in a more regional way. You know, Have you ever come across a, a local person who's willing to give up power to you? Or
4: <laughs> so let me remind the audience of one thing, which is, the BCDC was created in 1965 because there was no unifying force around the bay so the key here I think is yes we need a regional governance system it doesn't mean you need a new regional authority but you need a regional governance system because the way you described it Greg it's a zero-sum game I give up power as a local official to somebody else and I get you know mm-hmm. diddly Well, that's not the way it's going to have to work. What's going to have to happen is that everybody's going to have to be invested in the system and everybody's going to have to get a return. Power sharing. And everybody's going to have to give up something in order to get a lot more. We're not at that point yet in the Bay Area. I mean, we have somewhere between 41 and 66 cities that touch the Bay. And so what we're going to have to figure out how to do and what we are doing is working with not against but with local governments and helping them create incentives and helping them actually have skin in the game to help us deal with regional problems.
1: Elaine Forbes I want to talk about the insurers, the lenders, you know as long as companies and building owners can get their insurance and can get a loan It's business as usual, because it's hard to focus on something like sea level rise, because it's always like, yeah, we'll deal with that next quarter, or the next
2: CEO (laughs) will take care of that. Right. I've actually heard that. Have you? (laughs) Yes. The next CEO will take care of this. Yes. So I think that this is a classic example of the pricing not being there yet. So the insurance companies aren't noting the risk. Uh, The lenders continue to lend. And so I think that I don't know if the private sector thinks the public sector will solve the problem. Hardly. um, Or if they're just not pricing it yet because these projections are always moving and they haven't been flooded yet. But it's coming. And I think it's incumbent upon the public sector to explain to the private sector that pretty soon your rates are gonna skyrocket or you won't be able to buy insurance and what that might mean to their portfolio. So it is coming, I don't know when it's coming, but it will be priced in.
1: And what can an individual property owner do? We're sitting in a, in a $30 million building at one of the lowest points on yes, the bay, right. <laughs> nonprofit, and we think, okay, we know, but what could we do? Because
2: the government has to solve that. No property owner can do this. Well, you can spearhead my CFD formation uh, for the downtown property CFD owners. Community facilities district. Sorry, it's a special tax. So property owners can vote to tax themselves and... Uh, Community facilities district is a way in California, and I think there are special tax provisions in every state where property owners can tax themselves for a specific purpose. Uh, so that's one thing you can do. I think private property owners should also ask their government what they're doing and what their plan is, and how to engage in that plan and that conversation.
1: And the reality is, I've interviewed the the mayor of Miami out here on this stage, and mm-hmm. you know, talk about any city that's really in trouble. Really in trouble. Um, Uh, But, you know, property development is still happening in Miami. You know, the tax base has gone up and up and up. And no elected politician is going to say, stop the party, right? Or we're going to have to retreat. No elected official is going to do that.
2: We haven't done that to date. I mean, we've said, okay, there's been a hurricane. There's been a fire. There's been a flood. Let's pour money and let's rebuild. Let's come back. But the money will dry up because there will be more and more flooding on every coastline all across the Bay Area, all across the state, all across the nation, all across the world. And as the scale ramps up, just saying, well, pour money at this problem is not going to be possible. But when we look at who's already in the queue and who's approved and the cost of those projects that the federal government already has a call on, it's very daunting and the time will change. It's, it's already coming.
0: you're listening to Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking about how shorelines are changing due to sea level rise with our guests Elaine Forbes, Executive Director of the Port of San Francisco, Larry Goldsband, Executive Director of the Bay Conservation and Development Commission, and Nahal Gogai, Bay Area Program Lead with the Environmental Justice Coalition for Water. Here's Greg.
1: There goes, Ben. there is a city south of San Francisco called Foster City where they decided to tax themselves. San Mateo County has done this. So tell us some examples of, of uh, citizens who have said, we've got to pay for this now and reach into our pocket and do something.
4: Well, Foster City is an example. The people who have bought homes in Foster City and who have lived there for a long time, or even the newcomers recognize that their life is essentially controlled by a levy. And so Foster City residents voted to tax themselves in order to raise the height of their levy. And uh, they used a letter from BCDC saying that if you're going to do this, you need to raise it to a certain level to make sure that you account for rising sea level, because why would you go halfway? And that's basically what Foster City did. People taking it upon themselves to do something to protect their community.
1: And anyone who's flown into San Francisco airport, you look down, there's like, boom, it's right there on <laughs> the water. There's like boats right in front of people's yards. It's, it's surrounded by water. Larry Goldsband, as you look around the country, what other cities are doing a good job preparing, planning? Who do you look to as like, ah, they're, they're doing it right?
4: I like Boston. I think New York has done a great job. And Florida. I mean, we talked about Miami, but you have a four-county Pack there that's actually trying to really work hard at things. The difference is that most of those places have experienced flooding. And so as a result, they have an idea about what flooding really means. We haven't experienced flooding really a lot, at least nowhere near the magnitude, and the storms nowhere near those magnitudes. And so when you talk to people about rising sea level, they haven't really experienced here in the Bay Area what. It really means to see water in their front yards or sharks in their backyards as the Hayward (laughs) Interpretive Center talks about it And so that limits how we can talk about it now remember and this is the thing I always like to say Unfortunately is it took 25 years for the Bay Area to replace the east span of the Bay Bridge after Loma Prieta Big earthquake. Yep. How are we going to be able to convince folks That we need to do something prior to an el nino combined with a king tide combined with say a 25 year storm
1: elaine forbes what happens during the next hundred year flood in san francisco
2: the muni embarcadero station floods so we have a, a catastrophe in the regional transportation system And, again, that will impact most people who need to get to their jobs that day and don't have the ability to call in and say, hey, I couldn't make it, and they need that income that day. So low-income people will be hurt the most. Then we'll get the system up and running, and um, we'll clear out the flood, and the storm will will pass. But that's a major, major impact from the 100-year storm. That's a very, very big impact. So we are working with the Army Corps of Engineers on that problem right now. And there are lots of interesting things you can do, some temporary and some more permanent. So you can put out movable barriers and you can make these smaller scale changes that can protect a community and buy yourself runway. A lot of it is sort of buying yourself runway before you have to make much more large scale change. And the, the town of Hoboken, New Jersey, after Superstorm Sandy, they
1: were offered a bunch of federal money to protect them, and they looked at those big walls and said, nah, no thanks. They turned it away. We don't want your money. We don't want those walls. And they're kind of letting it ride. We're going to invite your participation for questions or a brief comment. Welcome.
2: Good evening, Steve Cadivar. Thanks very much. Um, I do hear change is coming. I agree. Um, the key change you really need requirement, a priority change at the federal government level. Uh, United States is not not poor, is rich. $1.7 trillion will be invested in the next 30 years on nuclear weapon modernization. So there's money, but there's not enough priority. Thank you. Who'd like to respond to that? I can, on a positive note, (laughs) um, (laughs) because I agree that the inaction out of Washington DC is very disheartening, but I will say we did get the new start from the Army Corps of Engineers, which is a federal agency, and I think they've changed their terminology, they've crossed out climate change, and I think they've put in climate something. But they know it's a rising tide, and they're here, and they're studying our problem, and even though the politicians are being ridiculous The bureaucrats are not and so they are continuing to work with communities on current flood future flood And so I think there is there's hopefulness because now we can see it, you know, Miami's underwater on on sunny days So they know
4: there, There's also if I can if I can give another bit of good news um, The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which runs the Coastal Zone Management Program, of which BCDC and the Coastal Commission, the Coastal Conservancy are part, actually had its grant-making program increased this past fiscal year by the Congress. And that was due in large part, I believe, by the action of Southern Republican governors— And mid Atlantic Republican governors who understand the federal state partnership and understand how their coastal zone management agencies work with the federal government on issues like resilience. And so you're seeing different, sort of, different combinations of people working in different ways.
1: And there was other Republican governors who protected investment tax credits, production tax credits, a lot of the tax breaks for clean energy in the most recent budget. Our conversation is about rising tides at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Elaine Forbes is executive director of the Port of San Francisco. Larry Goldsband is executive director of the Bay Conservation and Development Commission, a state agency responsible for protecting the Bay coastline. Nahal Gogai is Bay Area program lead with the Environmental Justice Coalition coalition for water let's go to the next question welcome to climate one
2: thank you good evening i'm david capelli i'm a millennial policy commissioner for uh, miami-dade county my question is regards to how are you engaging millennials and communities of color uh, in your work around infrastructure from research design build planning and implementation what does that look like from an economic development perspective and what does that engagement look like I'll <laughs>
3: so I would have to start with uh, one of the groups that was a part of the Resilient by Design program. I think that they hit the nail on the head when it comes to working with communities on, you know, building their capacity and um, showing them that they are able to become leaders and to become the technical experts that their communities need. So they worked with communities on permaculture and design anything from understanding just the how to build a bioswale which is it's a way to mitigate flooding. They learned a little bit more about the issues of toxins on the the watershed of just the flooding that's happening from The upper watershed, and how there's a Superfund site in Marin City, which is north of the Bay, in the North Bay, and um, just I think it's just education and saying, you know what, you live here, and if you want to continue living in this neighborhood, um, we need your local expertise, and there are jobs out there. You can learn, you know, we're we're helping with our Prop 1 program on capacity building, which will include applying to grant funding, learning how to write a proposal, learning how to become an incorporated 501c3, um, little steps along the way, and eventually leading to green jobs. So through my job, I've also worked with Measure AA um, and helping that ballot measure to educate the community on how they can get more involved and uh, giving them a priority on funding. So that's $25 $25 million for the next 20 years at least, and um, making sure that community leaders know how to apply and making sure they even know that the funding is there for them and giving them the te- technical expertise so that pretty soon they'll be able to just lead their own programs and, and help save their communities. And, and let me and say from the back. state
4: government side, we're working together with A number of other organizations in a very transparent, very public process to actually figure out how the San Francisco Bay Plan, which is our regulatory framework, whether and how it should be changed, amended to ensure that environmental justice issues are considered by the commission in a way that is appropriate to its authority and its jurisdiction. We're doing that openly.
1: The waterfront in San Francisco, a lot of things come together there. as a big tourist destination. Uh, it's also a, a place for offices and, and, and commerce, uh, tours. It's also a place where commuters are are, are, are bicycling to work, including myself. And, and we often hear that, oh, the sea level rise, there's going to be some construction work, so the bike improvements can't be made because there's going to be construction for the sea. How do you balance current and long-term
2: needs like that? that's a really important question I mean I think every public official has a requirement to figure out if they can leverage other projects if you're in the same geography Um, but in general for this the seawall project because a lot of it is going to be underground a lot of it will be those soil improvements uh, with some flood protection measures we want to move ahead with other projects that improve life on the Embarcadero Um, so we don't want to lose what we have we want to make bike improvements and other kinds of improvements as a city because those big Scale urban form changes that we're going to need to make to protect our line of defense are several decades down the road. So bike
1: lanes don't need to wait for the seawall?
2: No. Larry Goldsman, tell us about
1: the importance of wetlands and how, how nature can be kind of natural shock absorbers to impact some of the, the, the storm surge and cushion. This could have happened. You, know, you hear about oysters protecting, oyster beds protecting New York City, et cetera. Can Mother Nature help us?
4: Mother can, Nature can help us if we act quickly and if we have enough room in various places in order to create large... What are called horizontal levees, which will allow the levee to actually accrete meaning to gain the ability to actually Have plants and so on and so forth and to create that sponge effect And that sponge effect is very very real and it is not like a seawall but in order to protect both the um, built and natural parts of the bay, you're going to have to create both natural and man-made structures to do so.
1: And one man-made structure that got a lot of attention a few years ago, I keep hearing about this. It was, was uh, Goldilocks, the idea that there's some big magical gate put under the, the Golden Gate Bridge. And it wouldn't it be nice if we could just, like, this one piece of magnificent engineering could save us all this trouble, Larry Goldsman. Why, why can't Goldilocks come to the rescue? Or can Goldilocks come
4: to the rescue? <laughs> Well, I mean, one of the really interesting things, and Will Travis, my predecessor at BCDC, talks about this all the time, is that you're going to need both large and small solutions to this to this issue. Goldilocks would be a large solution, but it would also cause large amounts of difficult decisions to be made. And so I would argue that as we look Past the next twenty or thirty years, sort of in that next generation that Elaine talked about, you're going to start seeing discussions about larger types of protection.
1: So people look to the Thames or some sort of grand. Sure, there's Thames,
4: there's Venice, you know, and so and and the, Netherlands, you know, the Netherlands. Netherlands has has its way, but you know, there's an awful lot of pressure flowing through the mouth of the Golden Gate, huge amounts of pressure going back and forth. And so from an engineering perspective, that would be macro in the biggest sense.
1: I talked to a homeowner who owns a home in Malibu and she knows about climate change and and she bought another lot next door. She's doubling down in Malibu. I'm like, (laughs) really? And she thinks that, you know, with with cement and steel, she's going to protect herself. (laughs) What does that do, Larry Goldsband? Is is, is she going to be successful?
4: In the short term if she can build a seawall if the Coastal Commission lets her <laughs> what's it do to her neighbors? <laughs> well, that's a really good point point. and one of the things that BCDC is doing is in the next in the next year or So we're going to be having a public process about changing our regulations to make sure that Just as you have to do a vulnerability analysis on your project and what it means You're also gonna to have to take a look at your neighbors and what your project means for the neighbors. because you
1: can build a wall But it kind of screws your neighbor. It right? can it can Next question. Welcome.
4: Hi, my name is Micah. I live in San Francisco. Um, when you talk about these huge problems uh, of huge scale and the, the solutions and interventions that go with them, it's hard for me to reason about the prices and the costs. Can you put them in familiar terms like a levy costs $15 per parcel saved or the cost of a seawall is X dollars per citizen of the Bay Area?
2: Elaine Forbes. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were going to turn to me. Way to go, um, 500 million dollars buys you three-quarters of a mile for a new seawall so that's a um, Something that you can think about um, I think that the Ways in which we communicate the cost of these things is going to be very important Not only because we have to find the money But I think also this wake-up call that I spoke of earlier that we're having to deal with this because of inaction and and I'm not a scientist by any measure, Um, but from what I understand, there's disaster coming, but if we don't fix what we're doing, it's catastrophe. So we need to say we have to understand the cost of sea level rise and the cost of climate change so we can change our behavior to stabilize the planet. So I think it's a very good question, and it will cause me to wanna express it more clearly in the future.
0: Greg Dalton has been talking about sea level rise in a changing climate with Elaine Forbes, Executive Director of the Port of San Francisco, Larry Goldsband, Executive Director of BCDC, and Nahal Gogai with the Environmental Justice Coalition for Water. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. If you like the program, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And join us next time for another conversation about energy, economy, and the environment.
1: Climate One is a project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner and Justin Norton. Annie Chelsea, Devin Strolovich, and Claire Schoen edit the show. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club's CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.